The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for this great truth, knowing that we are in him by faith, not trusting in ourselves, but in his work, his atonement. We ask now that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit. Open up the scriptures to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're continuing in 1 Corinthians 15. We're looking at verses 12 to 19 uh, this morning. Bertrand Russell, who's a famous uh, British philosopher, he lived to be almost 100 years old. He died in 1970. And he was somewhere between an agnostic and an atheist. And he even said it was a very difficult question for him to answer which one that he was. But he said in his worldview that science was central, yet absolute certainty uh, was not. This is what he said. He said, to my mind, the essential thing is that one should base one's arguments upon the kinds of grounds that are accepted in science. And one should not regard anything that one accepts as quite certain, but only as probable in a, in a greater or a less degree. Not to be absolutely certain is, I think, one of the essential things in rationality. Now stick with me. So then he has this most famous quote of quotes by Bertrand Russell, which talks about the... Uh, unyielding despair. And he says this, and I think he sounds pretty inconsistent with what he just said where he talks about not having a uh, absolute certainty, but he seems pretty certain in this quote. He says, man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his love and his beliefs are, are but the outcome of accidental collocations or chance collisions of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must in inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built? Does that sound inspiring to you this morning? I mean, that is the resolve that it's not going to be good. Let me translate this for you if you didn't quite understand. This is more bringing it down on my level. Toy Story 3. <laughs> you have Buzz and Woody and Jesse and Rex and Mr. and Mr. Potato Head. And they're all in the landfill. And they're headed for the fiery incinerator. And Rex the dinosaur says, I see light. We're going to be okay. And Woody says, I don't think that's daylight. 
And as they're looking and realizing that it's the fire of the incinerator and that this is the end, Jesse looks at Buzz and says, what do we do? And Buzz looks at her. He has no answer. And so he just reaches out to hold her hand. And Buzz and Woody looked at each other and they have nothing to say. They have no hope. And so they hold on to this unyielding despair by grabbing hands. And they all grab hands until a big scooper picks them up. If there is no resurrection from the dead, there is no big scooper to pick you up, okay? This is why we need the resurrection, so that we are not in this foundation of unyielding despair where the soul's habitation is safely built on, on nothing. Now, I need to blow my nose before I start this reading. I hate to do this, but you might want to turn me off for a second. I was quite moved reading those Revelation passages. That just the glory of Jesus is amazing. So this might be a sob fest. I hope not. But First Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all pe people most to be pitied. This is logic on fire. Paul is point by point giving us a sevenfold deduction that follows like dominoes. And he's considering, what if the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead didn't happen? Well, one, many of you are saying there's no resurrection from the dead. Well, if that logical premise is true, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 13. Number two, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. It's empty. And your faith, it's empty and foolish. Three, We've been found to be misrepresenting God. We're liars, verse 15. Four, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised, verse 16. Basically the same argument as point one, repeated. Argument five, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Six, then those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Your friends your loved ones and those who've gone before you, there's no hope for them. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. And so let's follow these logical sevenfold arguments like dominoes. Point number one, if there is no resurrection from the dead, like many of you are saying, then not even Christ has been raised. Same argument he makes again in verse 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. This is what we would call, and if you're into logic, the Latin logic 
argument is the reductio ad absurdum, <clears throat> a reduction to absurdity. And this is the fallacy <clears throat> that if the premises of someone's argument are taken to be true, then it necessarily will lead to absurd conclusions. So once again, let me bring that down for you. I once worked for a tree limmer. I bring it down for myself, okay? I worked for a tree limmer one summer when I was in seminary and learned how to use a chainsaw, which I still enjoy to this day. And he was an amazing guy to watch in the trees. He was like Spider-Man, and he was super uh, light, very uh, strong for his pound per pound. He could fly around in the trees. <clears throat> and I asked him one day if he had ever fallen out of a tree. And he told me that he had, actually twice, before I'd worked with him. And one of the times, he, before he switched to a metal rope, you're harnessed in, and he had a nylon rope. And when he was sawing, he sawed through the branch, sawed his rope, and he's harnessed in. That's how he's resting in the tree. Well, he, he cut off the rope and instantly discovered gravity in a hurry as he fell about 25 feet and broke his back. And he healed up in a few months and was back at action. Well, that's a long way to tell you that what, that's exactly what this argument is doing is that you say you're sawing off the limb in which you're sitting on. And so the people are saying to Paul, there's no resurrection <clears throat> of the dead in the future. And Paul is saying there's already been a resurrection of the dead in the past. His name is Jesus. And if there is a resurrection of Christ that's already happened, then you can't logically say there's no resurrection of the dead because there's already been a resurrection of the dead. And so to say there's no resurrection of the dead is to saw off the limb of which you're sitting on because Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the argument that he's making logically. Number two, if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain. There's no, there's no point. There's no uh, weightiness to the message. Your faith is rubbish. It's in vain. It's, it's empty. It's a waste of time. Kenneth Bailey in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he says, without the resurrection of the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus is just like the death of John the Baptist. If there's no resurrection, Jesus is just one more rabbi who tried to renew Israel and failed. And in such a case, Peter, James, Andrew, and John would have returned to their boats, taken up their nets, and lived out their lives in their village. Their preaching would be in vain and their, and their faith would be in vain. But that's not how the Apostle Paul spoke of death. Death is this important subject. If you've seen Morgan Freeman's thing on Netflix, on the story of God, he says, this is the most important question that we'll ever answer. What happens when we die? Now, he comes up with, he interviews all the different religions, and they're all kind of given equal footing. But at the very beginning, he asked a profound question. This is the most important question. What is going to happen when we die? Well, the Apostle Paul says things that are really strange. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. My desire, Paul says, is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. You don't have that without resurrection. 
so we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You can't say that if there's no resurrection. Apostle John records in Revelation 14, 13 that I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. It's amazing what this hope does to people. When you see the difference between believers who die and unbelievers who die, and I've been near the end with both, I had the privilege to, to be with Evie Smith right up to near the end. And you guys remember Evie. What a great, wonderful, godly lady. And she was right in hospice, right on Muncaster Mill Road. And she's right up there. And she, she wrote her whole service. They knew, she knew she only had a little bit of time left. But she designed her worship service. And she was very particular on what she wanted. And she had her sense of humor and a smile because she knew where she was going. And she even joked with me. You know, I asked her, do you want me to sing at your funeral? And she said, no, you know, I do not want you to sing. You know? and she had such a joy about her because she knew that this is true. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors. Number three, if this isn't true, Paul says we are found to be misrepresenting God. And Paul is actually saying we would be testifying literally against God is the Greek word. We would be against God. Paul would have been promoting and preaching a hoax. And the apostles would have committed perjury and passed off the greatest lie the world has ever known and would have been breaking the ninth commandment every time they opened their mouths with the gospel because they'd be bearing false witness. If the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, then the apostles will be more despicable than Bernie Madoff. And Bernie Madoff pulled off the greatest Ponzi scheme that I know of, but the apostles will be far worse because even more people would have invested their money and their lives being convinced of a future return that just simply isn't there. Either there is pie in the sky or there isn't. This is either a true statement, it's either true or it's a lie. And C.S. Lewis, who taught literature at Cambridge and Oxford in the middle of last century, a great Christian apologist, he said about the Gospels themselves, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like, and I know that not one of them is like this, referring to the Gospel history, the historical accounts of the Gospels. If the Gospel writers were telling lies... The problem is liars and hypocrites are not the stuff of which martyrs are made. Sometimes it's good for us to be reminded of the firm foundation, the scaffolding of the gospel writers. Listen to what Eusebius, church historian, this is what he says happened to the disciples. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by a sword wound. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt after being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece as a result of his preaching. 
Peter was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross. James the Just was beaten to death with a fuller's club. James the Greater, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded at Jerusalem, Acts 12. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, Bartholomew was martyred for his preaching in Armenia when he was flayed to death by a whip. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Patras, Greece. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he refused to not deny his faith in Christ. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace the traitor Judas Iscariot, was stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas was stoned to death at Salonica, and the apostle Paul was beheaded under the reign of Nero in Rome in AD 67. The apostle Thomas was stabbed and killed with a spear in India during one of his missionary trips to establish the church in the subcontinent. Does that sound like something that might give it a little more weight? Knowing a lot of these people lost their head from their shoulders for what they believed and what they saw and testified to. N.T. Wright says, if there had been an empty tomb and, and no eyewitness sightings, no one would have concluded it was a resurrection. They would have assumed that the body had been stolen. And yet if there was only eyewitness sightings of Jesus and no empty tomb, no one would have concluded it was a resurrection. Only if the two factors were put both true together, would anyone have concluded that Jesus was raised from the dead? And then you have to factor in that these very witnesses who knew there was an empty tomb, who saw his body and saw him raised, died for the very thing that they're testifying to. Number five, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Think about that. If Christ had not been raised, your faith is empty and you're still in your sins. Tim Keller, popular writer, pastor, redeemer, Presbyterian for years up in Manhattan, he said 50 years ago, if you felt guilty, you'd run to a priest. Now you'd go to a therapist. But it's the same thing. At the bottom, the Bible says there's a guilt you can't get rid of, and we all have a sense of God, and we all have a sense of condemnation. We all have a sense that we owe our master and our maker more than we can pay. And then he says, why does gossip sell magazines? Why do we find it delicious? Why do you, why do you love reading about other people's foibles, foibles? Why is it, for example, TV shows, even so-called news shows, have proliferated over the last 10 years? And they're, they're selling gossip. He said, because they show the steamy side of everybody, and why, why, why do we watch that? His conclusion is it makes us feel less guilty ourselves. But it doesn't fix the problem that we all have this problem of sin. The Bible says sin's wages must be paid, Romans 6.23. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then death still wins and our redemption is foiled. But Paul asserts clearly in Romans 4.25 that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification. He says... I mean, think about that. He died for our sins, was raised for our justification. When you purchase something these days, what, what do you always have to keep? Because if you don't have one of those puppies, the receipt, and then that thing later, you need to prove it, you want to be able to go back to Home Depot someday when that whatever breaks and present the receipt because the receipt is the proof of purchase. The resurrection is the proof of purchase. That's it. He died for our sins and was raised for our justification, proof of receipt that, that the payment has been made 
here's the proof. God raised him from the dead, and we are accepted. And now Christ is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for all those that are his. And we're told there's no condemnation now in Christ. But if Christ hasn't been raised, then we're still in our sins, and Christ and faith in Christ would be foolishness. It would be like faith in John the Baptist. It wouldn't get you anywhere. Number six, those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You see, this is a scary thought. And to put it bluntly, if Christ hasn't been raised, then all who've gone before us are either rotting or frying. That's the reality. That's what Paul's saying. And someday we'll be either rotting or frying. And that death still wins and its stinger still kills forever and we're still in the jaws of death. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who've gone before us, that you may grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so we have hope, even though we grieve. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, if the world is all this, there is, one commentator put it like this, the believer is a martyr to an illusion, and anybody is better off than he. Yet here's the interesting thing. Since we know that we know that hope has begun, and it isn't fulfilled yet, at least not yet, but it will happen. New heavens, new earth, Christ's return. We have hope. The flip side is that if we knew, and we do know this truth, that if, if this life is all we have hope for, who actually is to be most pitied? Who's to be most pitied? It's actually the people that don't believe in anything to come. They're the most pitied because this is the only heaven they will ever know. But for believers, this is the only hell you will ever know. Tim Keller again put it like this. He said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why worry about anything of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is, is, is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's how the first hearers felt when they heard reports of his resurrection. They knew that if it, if it was true, it meant we can't live our lives any way we want. It also meant we don't have to be afraid of anything, not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. You see, if you took Paul's seven arguments there and then you turned them around, then, then this is what Paul is really saying, positively. There is a, is a resurrection from the dead and Jesus is the first fruits of that and we too shall rise. Christ has been raised and the apostles' message isn't in vain and our faith isn't in vain. It's true. Paul and the others aren't telling lies or misrepresenting God. Christ has been raised and your faith is resting in this good news that you're no longer in your sins and that they've been forgiven and that the resurrection is Jesus' receipt, his proof of purchase. Those who preceded us who've trusted in Christ for salvation have not perished, they have everlasting life. And our hope is not for this life only and as a result we are of all people the most secure, content, joyful and at rest. Is that not good news? And as we come to the table this morning, think about this. How could you come to the table and enjoy all these privileges of fellowship when it's all conditioned upon 
as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's all based on the reality that the resurrection is true. So this is great news. This is not the end. This is just the beginning. And so we press on because we have hope. We have courage and now we care. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there is none like you. We worship you. We want to sing your praises, crown you the, the king and the head of the church, knowing that you already are. We thank you for the privilege now to come to your table. Thank you that you've done everything for us to make us acceptable. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.